I would invite you to take a copy of God's Word so that you can follow along to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. This is page 778. If you would like to use the Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you. Micah chapter 5, and we read uh, the first five verses, or the first uh, line of the fifth verse. This is God's word, and it's for you today, and for me. We thank him for that. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Well, we open with Israel, a nation that is in a state of... Great turmoil and distress, and indeed, humiliation. Our first point of consideration, a humiliated nation. Micah, look at verse 1, is calling the nation to prepare for war. Muster your troops. And the reason is because siege is laid against us. Uh, Jerusalem has been besieged by the Assyrian army. And the Assyrians were coming off an exhilarating victory uh, since just slightly before the events of this chapter in 722 B.C. uh, The Assyrians did the unthinkable. Uh, They laid siege to the northern capital, Samaria, in Israel, and they captured it. Now uh, the Israelite people were carried off uh, into captivity. The city now populated by Assyrians and other Gentiles. And we actually have the historical record of the Assyrian king, Sargon II. He completed the work that his uh, predecessor, Shalmaneser V, had begun uh, by completing the, the capture and the captivity. This is how he described the event. This is from Sargon II. He says, I besieged and took Samaria, led away as booty 27,290 inhabitants together with their chariot tree, The terror inspiring glamour of Asher, my lord, overwhelmed them. Asher being an Assyrian god. The terror inspiring glamour of Asher overwhelmed them. At the very mention of my name, their hearts pounded in fright and their arms lost their vigor. So you can hear how he boasts in himself and he boasts in his god, mocking the people of Israel. And so you understand the tragedy here. Friends killed. 
families uh, torn apart, loved ones kidnapped, homes destroyed. This is the state of Israel as we open Micah 5. They are utterly trampled by their enemies, and now it's looking like it won't be long until what happened to the southern capital in Samaria is going to now happen to the, or the northern capital is going to happen to the southern capital, Jerusalem. Second Kings 18 describes the event of, um, it's a contemporary event with Micah 5, Second Kings 18. That's where siege is laid against Jerusalem. Sennacherib is now the king of Assyria. And we read of um, that, that siege that he lays. Hezekiah is the king. He begs for his life like a dog. He he, he offers to pay Sennacherib to, to let him survive, even takes gold from the temple to sort of barter a peace with him. Sennacherib eventually um, uh, uh, disagrees to this arrangement. He rejects Hezekiah's attempts. And what the Assyrian king does next is he takes one of his chief officers who knows Hebrew, and he sends him to stand outside the city wall and to hurl insults in the hearing of the people in Hebrew, insults of their king, Hezekiah, of their God, Yahweh. It's humiliating. This is a humiliated nation. That's the imagery that lies behind that line in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Uh, in, ancient, in the ancient world, being struck on the cheek is a sign of debasement and shame. So when Jesus instructs us to turn the other cheek... Uh, he's not counseling against striking back in self-defense as much as he's counseling against striking back in pride to try to save face because it's an embarrassing thing. That's uh, Israel. They're in a state of deep embarrassment. They're in a state of paralyzing fear on top of that. Right? I mean, the armies are surrounding them. They, they can hear them. They can see them. Th- their their um, doom is... Inevitable. That's how it feels to the Israelites. I think it was that the, the, the feeling they had would have been captured well uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien in his book, The Two Towers, where he's describing the evil forces of Sauron marching against the last holdout of the good guys at Helm's Deep. And the king there, Theoden, turns to Aragorn and he says, It's been said that Helm's Deep has never fallen to assault. But now my heart is doubtful. The world changes, and all that once proved strong now proves unsure. How shall any tower withstand such numbers and reckless hate? I think that captures probably what Hezekiah and what the people are feeling as the Assyrians surround them. All that once proved strong now proves unsure. I wonder what your reaction might be in such a situation. If you found yourself... I don't necessarily mean besieged in a city surrounded by uh, people that want your life. But maybe you could put yourself in a situation, and maybe you don't need to think that hard about it to get yourself there, in a situation of disgrace or shame. Uh, What do we think the solution to disgrace or dishonor is? If we feel like maybe we're being picked on or passed over, how do we react Maybe you've been made to feel that way in your marriage. Maybe you've been made to feel that way in your workplace. Maybe your experience has even been tragically in the church that you've been made to feel those ways. 
What do we do in such a situation? What's the solution to fear, to that sense of being humiliated, of not being good enough, not being strong enough? If we feel like we're being treated this way, what do we do? Some of us turn tail and run. That would be one solution, to run. I have run before in my life when I face situations like that. I could be very vulnerable, I suppose, but I'll just tell you about the time I played peewee baseball for four years and never won a game. Four years, never a game. It's humiliating. I meant we never got to go get ice cream after, ever. It got so bad that the coaches and the parents would take us if we just scored a run, you know? Like, forget winning, just get on the board. And so four years on the Red Sox. Yeah, right. uh, and we were known as that team. And I was from a family of ball players. My brother had a successful career in high school ball and then um, and summer ball. And my dad coached him. And my dad coached my sister in softball. And they won all their tournaments. And then me, four years. So what did I do? I ran. I hid. And I um, found refuge in the world of tennis instead. You know, that's what you do. It's, it's humiliating. I don't want to put up with this anymore. Some of us run. We think that's the answer to our solution or to our situation. Um, for many, uh, the response that seems to make the most sense when we're made to feel small is to, is to retaliate, not to run, but to retaliate, to assert oneself. The world promotes that approach. Certainly, we're, we're told to take charge, to demand happiness. This is what you know, self-help books will tell you or, or speakers. Um, you deserve to be happy, and, and nobody can take that from you. You do what you need to do to be happy, even if that means maybe you need to... Climb over the little guy to get it. You know, the world's solution to oppression, and the world will say oppression is a really bad thing, it's not actually to get rid of oppression. It's just to change who is being oppressed. So if you're at the bottom of the pack today, the solution is to be top dog tomorrow, to assert yourself. Now, is there anything wrong with being strong or bold or confident? Of course not. But if that's the answer to our fear and our shame or our humiliation, we're going to swing right past those things of being strong and bold and confident to being arrogant and to being cruel. If we think that's, that's the answer, that's our ultimate hope. The Bible, like it so often does, prescribes a help that goes against our gut reaction. It tells us something uh, that seems to be sort of like upside down logic. It doesn't seem to make sense. But... We see it here in in Micah 5 that the answer for Israel in this time of distress, it's not to run, nor is it to retaliate, but it is to rest in the promises of what God will do for the people. It's to rest in what God will do. You see, when God's on your side, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to run. He's got you. Similarly, you, you don't need to prove anything. You just need to trust him. The biblical answer to our weakness isn't just to become strong. The biblical answer to our ridicule isn't to engage in intimidation and put others down. That's not what we do when we face our fears. And so for Israel, the hope in their humiliation wasn't in exaltation, but in more humility. Because what does God do in this prophecy? He points their attention to a humble town. That's the second thing. We've seen this humiliated nation, and the hope for them is actually a humble town, Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Small town that people didn't give much notice to. Micah says it's 
too little to be among the, the clans of Judah. In other words, it's almost a miracle that it's part of the nation. You notice he even has to distinguish which Bethlehem he's referring to, Bethlehem Ephrathah, uh, because there were two Bethlehems. And it's so insignificant that people wouldn't know what you're referring to just to say it. Uh, that's what it was like to grow up in Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania. There was one, only one Hollidaysburg, but it's a small Hollidaysburg, and most people haven't heard it. So they say, where are you from? You say Hollidaysburg. You get the blank look, and so you try again. You know, it's near Altoona. That na- name is weirder than the first. What is, where, do, where, where do you live? You know, and then you try, um, well, Bedford, because at least that's a stop on the turnpike. And then eventually what you learn to do when you're from Hollidaysburg is you just say, I'm from Pittsburgh. It's three hours away, but, oh, okay, yeah, we get it, okay. That's Bethlehem, right? That's Bethlehem. And yet here we learn that God's going to use this small town in big ways. There will come forth from Bethlehem a ruler for Israel, the ruler. Can you imagine hearing that as a Bethlehemite, right? Our town, really? From, from our town? What are we known for? Derek Jeter or something? Holidaysburg had the slinky. The, the home of the slinky. Bethlehem, the home of the Savior. What? It can be. Why would God choose Bethlehem? An unimportant one-horse town for such an incredible moment. In one sense, God does it because he can. Because he can. We expect lights and um, a red carpet to be rolled out and, and cameras to be flashing when the Messiah comes. But God doesn't operate according to human wisdom. He doesn't operate according to our expectations. He isn't bound by them. And the incarnation is one of the clearest examples that we are given as to how God indeed chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. How God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. How God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So God chose the little town of Bethlehem, shameful in comparison to the other tribes of Judah, to shame the mighty nations of the world. And it tends to shame our pride and our self-esteem as well. But friend, I want to say, if you are willing to humble yourself and to look to this humble town, you will find everything you need. What, what will we find? Well, we'll find a hero. A, a ruler is what Micah calls him. What kind of ruler will come to our rescue? I think we could highlight briefly here three things about this ruler that comes from this humble town. He is one who does God's will. He is one who shares God's essence. And he is one who loves God's people. And each of these facts are fortifying for our faith and profoundly comforting for us, especially when we find ourselves overwhelmed with fear or shame, disgrace, or humiliation. First, this ruler does God's will. The hint is in just two words, two little words in the middle of verse 2. From you shall come forth for me. God is speaking. From you... Bethlehem shall come forth for me. This ruler will not wield power for his own prestige or to advance his own personal platform, but rather for the advancement of God's glory. 
He will not be in it for himself. He'll be in it for the Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, there's actually no greater title bestowed upon uh, men than to be called a servant of Yahweh. Only a handful of people are called a servant of the Lord in the Old Testament. Moses, or Abraham before him, uh, Job, Moses, Caleb, David, most especially. David, most frequently, is referred to as the servant of the Lord. And yet all of these servants at some point fall short of being entirely and fully for me, as God says here, for me. But it's Jesus Christ who is the greatest servant of all. It's only Jesus Christ of whom God says in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant, my chosen, the one in whom my soul delights, the one that makes me happy. He's talking about Jesus. We know that. Jesus told us in the Gospels that his incarnation centered on him being entirely for the Lord, being a servant for Yahweh. For I have come down from heaven, I've been incarnate, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then we say, well, what is that will? And he says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Could we not just summarize that with one word? Salvation. This is the will of him who sent me, to save sinners. Friends, to save sinners like us. And this is what we learn as we turn to the New Testament, that the servant who is entirely for God is actually entirely for us. For us. Wow. The one to come and be for God is actually to come and be for us. And so the ruler that Micah speaks of is clearly Jesus, because Jesus came from Bethlehem for the Lord. So what a statement God is declaring to this little town. From you, O Bethlehem, from you will come forth for me the one who does my will. From a little town comes the greatest servant of all. And Micah goes on to show that this ruler does God's will perfectly because of a second thing, because he shares in God's essence. He shares God's essence. I wonder if you noticed how Micah mentions that this ruler that will come from Bethlehem shares in the divine essence of God. We see it again in verse 2, where we're told that the ruler who will come forth from Bethlehem already has come forth from ancient days. Wrap your minds around that one for a moment. He really is the, the once and the future king of Israel. He's eternal. He's eternal because he's very God of very God, begotten, not made. The, the word rendered ancient there from ancient days in the ASV, it's a, a Hebrew word for everlasting. It's the word we encounter in Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, some commentators would suggest the actual meaning is not that this ruler is eternal or from eternity, but that the announcement of his coming is from eternity. So, who's coming forth is, is more like who's, who's, the announcement of his coming forth is from ancient days. But I agree with Matthew Henry, who says that this can be applied to no other than to him who was able to say before Abraham was... I am. This is good news. 
that the one who rules us is none other than God himself. And the question is, why is that good news? Well, it depends on your perspective. Depending on what you think your problem is in life, it might not seem like good news at all. Because if you think your problem is that you don't have enough uh, money or maybe enough intellect, enough degrees, uh, that you don't have enough friends, enough influence, if you think that your problem is that there's just too many haters, people that don't get you, people that aren't supporting you, if you think your problem is that um, you're, you, you're, you're not good-looking enough, if you think the problem is governmental conspiracies or big pharma or the media, then God is not going to be the one that you're going to look to for help if you think that's your problem. But when you realize your biggest problem in life is you, is your sin, then you'll realize very soon there's no amount of money that can, can get you out of the debt you owe to Almighty God. And there's no politician who's, who's savvy enough or strong enough to face those kinds of enemies you're really dealing with, Satan and sin. There's no self-help guru, guru insightful enough to cure your ails. Your problems are too big for that, and only God, only God is bigger than your problems. So it's good news to know that this hero, this ruler, it's good news to know that his coming forth is from old, from everlasting. He shares God's essence. Isaiah expands on Micah's point when he says, For to us a child is born... To us the Son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Mighty God. Mighty God. Mighty enough to help you and to help me. And that helpless infant in Bethlehem is the only one strong enough to help. Finally, this one who is very God, who will rule with the very power of the omnipotent, He will also rule with love. He will rule with love. So we see that this ruler is one who does God's will. He shares God's essence and he loves God's people. Micah paints this picture of the ruler standing in the midst of his people. He's not ashamed of them and he stands as a shepherd. He's one who is gentle, one who is uh, loving, one who is kind, one who is seeking the welfare of his people. He's um, He's not standing on his people. He's standing among his people. Not putting them down, but building them up. And we see that his love is like a magnet that that draws the lost back to their home. Do you see that in verse 3? Then the rest of his brothers shall return uh, to the people of Israel. There is, um, in this prophecy, uh, the hope of a restoration to the people of God when the ruler comes. And this one who will care for God's people, who will love God's people, who will not reject but rather gather in the wayward ones and the lost ones, it is through him and through him alone that finally, at long last, security and peace come. Verse 4, and they shall dwell secure. Verse 5, and he shall be their peace. Think about this with me. This is the word that Micah is preaching to the people of Israel on the eve of an invasion that will kill many of them. 
This is what Micah decides to tell the people on the eve of their own, what, what would appear to be their own destruction. Certainly, personally, we know not ultimately, the nation does not ultimately get destroyed. But there are people who are hearing this and who will be soon dead. People who will soon be taken into slavery. Isn't it remarkable that this is what Micah preaches as the Assyrian battering rams can, can be heard thudding in the background, threatening to destroy, you know, put yourself there, threatening to destroy your home, to kill your family, to take you captive. And at that moment, he speaks about a baby who's going to be born in a town that most people couldn't find on a map. This is the word that's meant to bring them peace and strength and hope and help. Isn't that remarkable that at this decisive moment in Israel's history, God does not give them a sword. He does not give them a shield. He gives them a gospel. And that's all they needed. And it's all you and I need as well. Do you recognize that? That's the question. Do you realize that in the face of your fears or your distress or your disgrace, you don't need to run and you don't need to retaliate. You merely need to rest in the promises that God is making to you. That's what you need. In our fear and in our weakness and, yes, in our humiliation, what does God do? He actually brings us down further, as it were, and he says, look at a manger filled with straw. Look at a crown of thorns. And he says to us, here's the hope in your humiliation that I was humiliated for you. That I was humiliated for you. That's the hope and the help we need. Will you take it today? Will you see the love of God for you? In being, in not only being made man, but then also in being made sin. Will you see that as the very thing you need? Today you need to hear it, just like the Israelites would have heard it. They heard the, the battering ram thudding on the doors outside. You need to hear the battering ram of sin and death. It is pounding on your heart right now. And God doesn't give you a sword he doesn't give you a shield. He gives you a gospel. He gives you his son. He gives you what Micah pointed forward to. He gives you the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Let's thank him for that. God, we have no words that can adequately express the thanks that we owe for this ruler who came forth from Bethlehem when the time was just right to be born of a woman, born under the law, to live uh, the life that we are called to live and yet fail to in word and in deed every single day, to, to take on, though he did not deserve it, the curse for sin, that he became a curse for us, that he died in our place, 
You've done so much. You've done it all. You've done everything that we need. Would you open our eyes to see it? Open our hearts to believe it. And we also pray that in believing, we would go from this place and live out its message in hope and in joy. Why should we not be filled with hope? Even as we suffer, even as we are afraid, even as we might feel the weight of shame or humiliation, we have a God who became these things for us, who stooped down to us to bring us up, to lift us up, to lift our heads in a one day, to lift our bodies into the new heavens and the new earth, to live with you forever. This is our hope. This is our help. Pray that you would confirm this word in our hearts. We ask it for Jesus' sake. And all of God's people said together, amen.